drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? is a funny thing, isn't it? It sometimes feels like it depends on who you talk to or what media you consume. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, on day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains... Alternative facts? Yeah, alternative facts, as former White House staffer Kellyanne Conway put it, have become a bit of a mainstay of our modern world. But for the last 200 years, The Guardian has doggedly sought journalistic truths. Its first newspaper was printed in the UK in 1821. It has a branch in the US and made its Australian debut online 10 years ago this weekend. Catherine Viner is the editor-in-chief of The Guardian and the first woman to hold the position. And Lenore Taylor is the editor of The Guardian Australia. Both are my guests. Welcome to you both. Pleasure to be here. Hi, Andy. Catherine, I remember when I first got my first byline in print. It was that sort of thrilling privilege of shaping the reader's understanding of the world around them. I believe that you're a student at school in North Yorkshire <laughs> when you your first article was published. I didn't expect you to go there, Andy, <laughs> yeah. I must say. Well, it was published in The Guardian. It was. Um, was that your spark for journalism? It's interesting because, yeah, I was I was 16 and it was, a, it, was, it was an article complaining about the kind of exams we were doing. I mean, we wouldn't publish it today, obviously. Um, uh, but no, and I think I just always, um, I always enjoyed reading it. I always enjoyed writing. But um, yeah, that was that was the first moment. I didn't, I didn't get it. They didn't give me a job for years, but um, I did always love The Guardian. So, Of course, things have certainly changed since then. In, in 2016, uh, you wrote that we are caught in a series of confusing battles between opposing forces, between truth and falsehood, fact and rumour, between the open platform of the web and its architects and how they envisioned it and the gated enclosures of Facebook and other social networks. That was in 2016, a big year, Brexit, Donald Trump was elected. How did these events and, and also social media more generally shape the media landscape and journalism that The Guardian operates in? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge question. And I think it's when I wrote that in 2016, it's that's only got more true. I think people have got more and more polarised, getting their um, their views from sometimes untrusted news sources, uh, untrusted news sources, places that they don't, that you can't really rely on. And it can be quite hard in the social media environment in particular to separate what you can trust and what you can't trust, what is truth and what is not truth. I think this, this um, polarisation is most extreme 
uh, in the US. Uh, my view, because they don't have a decent public broadcaster like the ABC in Australia and the BBC in Britain, which I think you know most people interact with every day and gives a constancy about facts. But it also means that news organisations like The Guardian, which are absolutely um, clearly committed to fact-based reporting um, and uh, news you can trust, uh, they're really needed more than ever. Yeah, because the truth cannot always be established in a court of law or the law can't be re responsible solely for establishing truth. Surely that's the role of a fourth estate. I mean, that's why we exist, um, to hold the powerful to account um, and try and get to find out what really happened. Lenore, over 10 years ago, you were chief political correspondent with the Sydney Morning Herald. Yes. You're about to take the plunge with this new company, <laughs> setting up shop down under, granted uh, one that had been around for a fair while in the UK, but not here. Why make the leap and what gave you the confidence that it would succeed as it has? Well, it was a risk and it was pretty damn scary, I've got to say. But um, if you think back to that time, there was huge tumult in the media landscape. You know, lots of mastheads were shedding staff and the, so the digital platforms were really sort of upending things. Newspapers were trying to work out how to be digital. And I was concerned about a couple of things. I was concerned about the concentration of media ownership in Australia, which we talked about forever, and this was, a, this was a chance to do something about it. And also The Guardian got digital journalism in a way that I don't think many Australian publishers did then. I mean, they've caught up, they do now, but at that time people were just kind of putting the newspapers on the web and thinking that that was digital and not using all that way that you can interact with readers uh, in digital media. So I was attracted to it for that reason as well. Like, I, you know, we talked about concentration in media ownership for years and I just really liked the idea of possibly doing something about it. But it was a it was a risk. Like there was no guarantee that it would work. And the then um, the head of Fairfax said to me that um, The Guardian might be a brand in a few inner city suburbs of London, but the only brands that would ever have any clout in Australia were News Corp and, Fa and then Fairfax. And, you know, I had to think that possibly he was right. I just wanted to prove him wrong. And hasn't Fairfax, now nine, had its troubles in that decade? How has that media landscape changed apart from the introduction of The Guardian Australia? Because that concentration is still there, you'd argue, Lenore. Uh, yes, it is still there. I, I remember when um, Nine Entertainment was taking over Fairfax, one of the reasons that the competition commissioner gave for allowing that takeover to happen and concentration to increase was that there were new competitors and the first competitor he mentioned was us. So there have been new entrants in. I think the way people get news has splintered and there are, you know, there are non-credible sources of, of smaller news, smaller news organisations, but there are credible and good ways that you can get information, you know, outside the mastheads. That very strict gatekeeper role has sort of broken down a bit over time. And I think over that time, the media companies in Australia have kind of worked out a bit better how to operate digitally and have taken sort of different tracks, if you like. Catherine, uh, when you came into this studio, you, this, you were reminded that you were in this studio, very, this very <laughs> studio 10 years ago. The, the challenges for media businesses are still there and have emerged in different ways. The emergence of AI is being closely watched by many, many industries, not just publishing and journalism, chat, GPT, for example, can write whole essays, whether or not it writes an accurate essay or not is an argument for another day. But it can be difficult to tell uh, what's human and what's not. How do you see the development of AI affecting the future of journalism? 
Yeah, it's it's a very big deal and it's happening really quickly. Um, you know, that it, it really is gaining momentum. And um, I think the, the challenge for um, news organisations is to sort of say, well, you know, generative AI could really... Um, give a huge amount we talk about lots of misinformation being around now this could multiply that by gigantic amount we could be just overwhelmed with misinformation and i think in a context like that a news organization you can trust becomes even more valuable and so you have to hold on to those things that make you a decent uh, news organization you know commitment to facts uh, commitment to um, uh, transparent reporting and transparent funding um, and make it clear what you're actually doing because in in this overwhelming uh, new world that we're moving into which like you say will affect everything but often the the internet trends affect affect uh, media first um you know we've all going to be uh, struggling to understand what's going on and so I think that's where where the you know titles you can trust really matters. Lenore is that something that you're grappling with at the Guardian Australia the emergence of AI as a force for good or for evil within the newsroom? So we're talking about it in the Guardian globally we have a working group um, run out of London to look at how we could use it how we won't use it what the guidelines are for using it. Um, I gave a lecture recently where I was sort of trying to think about these things and yeah the scary thing I think is the way that generative AI can give you answers to questions that look incredibly plausible but are entire nonsense. So I went for the purposes of this lecture, I asked to write a profile of me and it was like extremely flattering. I'd won all these awards, I'd done all these great things. It was all wrong. It was all completely wrong. I mean, I wish it was true but it wasn't true. And But it was written in a way that looked entirely plausible and that's the that's the scary thing and like Kath says I think that's the thing that means that you know trusted sources of information are more important than ever. And there's already a space for exaggeration in your career that's called LinkedIn. <laughs> we are at a time where media organisations face immense financial challenges and uh, you know there's huge dis- disruption BuzzFeed and Vice going under for example. The Guardian has confronted its own financial ups and downs, uh, but last year's annual revenue for the Guardian Media Company grew by 13%. How, how have you managed to do that, Catherine? So I think the big shift um, in terms of the Guardian's finances came in 2016 when we introduced this voluntary contributions model, which is like a paywall, but it's voluntary. Um, And we asked our readers to give us money for something that they could get for free. Um, And everyone thought it was a ridiculous idea. It was um, rubbished everywhere. Um, um, But actually, the readers really understood it. And uh, the thing they often tell us is that they give us money because they can afford it so that the person down the road can read it for free who can't afford it. Um, And people People give us very small amounts sometimes just to feel that they're contributing to The Guardian. And I think that's a really beautiful model for journalism. That so readers how does it work in so your committed. constituency, but mm-hmm. perhaps in not other user bases? No one mean? else has like, tried it, have ha- they? Ha- 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 yeah, because I, I, you can't imagine, <clears throat> let's say, a right-wing publication getting the same sort of support. Well, I think I think there's t- personally I think there's two reasons why it's worked for the Gu- why it's working for the Guardian. One is that um, there aren't many news organisations like us that have a openly progressive perspective, but are based in tracks uh, in, in facts and have information that you can trust. You know, report fairly. And secondly, we have a really close relationship with our audience. They really understand what we're trying to do. They're sort of really part 
part of it. And I think you know you need those two things for this model to work. If you just join me, Catherine Viner is the editor-in-chief of The Guardian, the first woman to hold that position, and Lenore Taylor is the editor of The Guardian Australia. We're together on the 10th anniversary of the launch of Guardian Australia. Lenore, uh, what have been the biggest challenges setting up a new media organisation here in Australia, especially when you look at the other outlets who are really struggling to get by and what's going on in the media more generally? So the biggest challenge right at the beginning was that we had almost no staff and we had to kind of, A, work really hard, do a lot of things with contributors and freelancers. Like we really had to work hard to do a broad enough offering for readers at the beginning while we were getting going. And, you know, we had to figure out this new revenue model. So we launched that. um, It was soon after I became editor in 2016 that we launched it in Australia. And now it's more than half of our revenue comes from readers. But that was, you know, that was a challenge. Um, And then kind of how you build out a media organisation. So, you know, we started when, when Kath launched Guardian Australia, we were sort of concentrating on very specific areas, politics, asylum policy, environment um, and things like that. And then we sort of bolted on things over the years. So now we do state politics. Now we do rural reporting. We've got a project to do reporting in the Pacific. It was kind of working out how to make the foundation stable enough and then kind of build, carefully build on it. What story are you most proud of? What, in my entire career? With The Guardian. (laughs) With The Guardian. (laughs) Ah, that's really, really tough question. I mean, probably one that made a big splash was right back at the beginning when um, the Snowden uh, leaks, We there was a document in there that showed that Australia had been spying on President Yudhiyoto and his wife and we published that in uh, collaboration with the ABC right, right back at the beginning and, you know, we were we were really small. There was a huge backlash. The Abbott government was, you know, very challenged by this because, you know, relations with Indonesia was were really important for a whole lot of their policy objectives, asylum policy and, you know, anti-terrorism policy and whatever else. And the actual spying had happened under the previous government, but we'd only just got the document um, then. And, you know, it was... The, the ferocity of the sort of backlash about that was, you know, was quite um, confronting, but I think it was an important story. Makes you know you're on the right track. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Catherine, in 1936, the Scott Trust was set up as the Guardian's sole shareholder to protect editorial independence. Recently, the Trust commissioned historians to look at the Guardian's past. What did they find and how are you coming to terms with what was found? Yes, this is a major piece of of work for us and a major um, thing to um, come to grips with, really come to terms with. Uh, We looked into the the founder of the Guardian, uh, John Edward Taylor, and the 11 funders of the Guardian. And they all worked in the cotton industry in Manchester in the north of England, you know, and it was the uh, early 19th century. And uh, we decided to look into their links because they worked in the cotton industry, how those links connected to uh, enslaved people. Uh, we commissioned these fantastic uh, historical researchers um, and they discovered that at least nine of the 11 funders had links to uh, slavery and one of them even owned a plantation in Jamaica. We found these links to Jamaica and the Sea Islands in America and and a bit to Brazil as well. Um, so there's a big, you know, we're a progressive organisation. This was a big moment for us and um, we decided to sort of lean in completely to the research. We published all of it. The researcher said this is the only product she's ever done where the, the people commissioning the research just said publish all of it don't edit anything just publish it all um we uh issued an apology a very serious um weighty apology on sort of 
a crime against humanity. And we committed, the Scott Trust committed, a large sum, at least £10 million, over the next decade to do more research into the connections um, and to establish some elements of reparative justice that's both within the media and in the regions that we found connections to. Um, and it's it's been a really uh, big moment for everyone involved with The Guardian, uh, staff and readers and all of our communities. Well, you know what they say, you've got to know where you've come from to know where you're heading. And we talked a bit about AI before. In terms of the future of journalism, you know, there's a lot of people that are paid far more than me to sort of belly button gaze about the future of journalism and, and where it's heading. But, you know, we've got everyone's got a microphone, everyone's got a camera in their phone, uh, everyone's got a, a, a megaphone, an account to, to shout their views about. Is real journalism a dying art form? I'll ask both of you, Lenore. No, no, it's more important than it ever was because we're here to find out the things that people wouldn't know if we weren't there looking for them. And also just because you've got a tiny snippet of video that you took of a particular event doesn't mean you know the context or the truth or what happened before or what happened after. So, and that's what we're here to figure out. And of course, if we were to ever use a little snippet of video from any particular event, we would find that out. So, yeah, there's all this information, but contextualising it and fact-checking it and testing it, that's our job. And it feels like the more there is that the zone is flooded with that stuff, the more you need it, I think. Kath, is real journalism a dying art form? Please, Defi- please say that. So. <laughs> it definitely isn't. It definitely isn't. And I think if we care about decent societies, decent communities, and if we care about democracy, then we have to care about journalism too. Beautifully said. Uh, congratulations on 10 years of The Guardian Australia. Catherine Viner is the editor-in-chief of The Guardian and uh, Lenore Taylor, the editor of The Guardian Australia. Hope you have a big party this weekend. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Thank Andy. you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.